0: Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast about neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We're a group of PhD students studying computational neuroscience. I'm Grace.
1: I'm Josh. And I'm Connor.
0: And the topic for this episode is brain-computer interface, and specifically, brain-computer interface uh, interfacing with the motor system.
1: Okay, so to spell it out a little bit slowly before we get into detail, a brain-machine interface, or a brain-computer interface, what those things will usually refer to is something where the brain, or more generally perhaps the nervous system, which you know includes the nerves in the spinal cord, for example, is interfacing directly with something like a computer or a machine the way that the body normally works in terms of how in terms of how the brain controls behavior right is that roughly speaking we don't really know the details but the brain has neurons in it and when we want to say move part of our body like our arm or our vocal cords when we're trying to speak there is neural activity in some brain areas that are involved in that particular task and we think in neuroscience that in some way that neural activity affects in, in the end ultimately muscles um, via signals that travel through the spinal cord and so the idea in brain machine or brain computer interfacing is to record those signals either externally on the scalp in the case of some non-invasive methods that we might talk about or internally by actually trying to directly record the activity of neurons in the brain and to use the signals that you record In order to control, for example, a cursor on a screen or in the case of um, some clinical scenario where you want to help, for example, a patient who has lost control of their arm or maybe has lost their whole arm or another limb. You can use those neural signals to try to control in some useful way a prosthetic limb, for example. And so those are the kinds of situations that people are going to talk about in you know, brain-machine interfacing and brain-computer interfacing.
2: So, I mean, generally, the, the idea would be to help people potentially who are paralyzed or immobilized in some way uh, recover some sense of mobility. Uh, for example, by having a person be able to control their wheelchair uh, automatically through their, through their thoughts if they can't move any parts of their body. Um, and there's kind of, just to be clear, a whole, you know, at a very high level, there's, you know, kind of alternatives to this, right? So you, you could imagine that you're, you're not going to actually interface with the brain, you could just interface with the muscles and maybe you use kind of residual muscles that a mostly paralyzed person has in their forehead or you'll use eye-tracking software and depending on where the person looks, it'll control something. Yeah. Uh, but there's kind of a thought that wouldn't it be cool if you could give these people a lot of mobility back by tapping into their brain directly and letting them control something that's maybe more complicated than you could ever imagine them control? Uh, controlling with, just eye tracking or, or something like that.
0: Just to be clear, a, a basic BCI setup kind of has three different parts. One would be the sensors that you use to get information about neurons, and that can be something like EEG on the scalp, and then there's going to be some sort of decoder or algorithm or some something that's done by a computer that turns those signals into a command for the third part, which would be some sort of output. Um, some sort of actuator like a robotic arm or a cursor on a screen and so really you can have choices at each step about what different sensor you want what kind of algorithm you want to use and what kind of output you want and so you can have these sensors that are non-invasive and the benefit of that is that surgery isn't required and they're easy to use and anyone can use them Um, but they have limitations in signal you can also have Something that is invasive, meaning that you uh, require surgery to use it, and generally the skull is opened, and you can use something like eCog, which is basically an EEG that is touching the brain directly, so that it has a a better signal. Or you can use individual electrodes that go into the brain and try to pick up uh, signals from individual cells or from something called a local field potential, which is thought to be kind of the summed input to a group of cells. And so you can use any of those options or anything else you can come up with uh, as a means of sensing neural activity that you then want to kind of decode and understand so that it can control your output device.
2: Generally, given the current technology, everything that people are doing with brain computer interface, brain machine interface, whatever, it's all going to be for clinical purposes.
0: And there's not even that many examples of true uh, invasive BCI for clinical purposes even. It's still in the very early stages.
2: Interfacing with the brain invasively is sufficiently burdensome to people that you wouldn't go through this given the current technology unless you had some serious clinical ailment that you want to partially remedy
0: and exactly what you would do for a patient would depend on what their exact issue is so if you have someone who say had an arm amputated but they still have residual nerve endings in the remaining part of their arm that's left maybe you just tap directly into those and use signals from those to control some sort of prosthetic arm rather than having to go into the brain um but for people who are completely paralyzed um to stroke or paralysis from the neck down or something like that, then usually the only option left is something that uh, actually gets signal directly from the brain.
2: And just as one semantic point, right, there's, there's a, right, a peripheral nervous system prosthesis uh, is, is in some sense still a brain-computer interface, right? I mean, the brain kind of ambiguous whether we mean the peripheral nervous system or not. That's kind of always something that's... But I mean, so the brain itself, right, is, is like the central nervous system, and so... Uh, generally, when people say brain-computer interface, they're referring to uh, either non-invasive or, or more commonly, I would think, invasive uh, recordings from the central nervous system, from from like the cortex, basically. Uh, but there also are non-invasive brain-computer interfaces, something like an EEG, which is uh, electrodes that are placed on the surface of the scalp, kind of attached with glue, and you can record kind of very noisy to neuroscientists, these are low-quality signals that have been kind of filtered through the skull. And it's not, it doesn't seem likely to most neuroscientists that there will be very much utility for kind of high-resolution brain-computer interfaces. That is to say, the, the, the quality of these signals is sufficiently poor that it will be difficult to decode reliably any interesting signals rapidly enough to use them to control a robotic arm or something like this so that's kind of not expected and a whole nother category of things that you could view as a component of this or uh, for other purposes are sensory prostheses or, or sensory brain interfaces. and we're not really focusing on that today but i mean for context you, you know you might be able to replace the eye with a sensor that you would then wire directly into the brain and and write in signals that replace the signals that the eye would natively receive. Or similarly, in the context of some motor brain interfaces, maybe a person wants to control a robotic arm with their brain, but then you could kind of write in some signals that are supposed to be like a crude sensory impression. So like if if they don't have a real hand and they're using this robotic hand, if the robotic hand touches something, they could get some signals to their brain to indicate what kind of things they're touching or the texture of those things.
1: And relatedly, you could have inputs from, again, say a robotic arm that would try to mimic our proprioceptive abilities. So, you know, when you hold your arm out, even if you close your eyes, you still have a sense of where your arm is relative to the rest of your body or relative to the objects around you. And so people might, some people think it's important to have, in constructing good brain machine interfaces for controlling prosthetic limbs and such, to have some kind of signals coming back from the prosthetic limb into areas of the brain um, that maybe we think are related to proprioception, so that you have some sense of where the artificial limb is.
0: So basically, uh, brain-computer interfaces can go in either direction, um, from the brain to a computer to an output, or from the world through a computer into the brain. But the vast majority of research currently is on the motor output form of the brain-computer interface. And people are kind of just getting interested in really figuring out something like sensory feedback for these kind of prosthetic limbs and that sort of thing.
2: With the notable exception of the cochlear implant, right? which technically is a brain-computer interface, and often gets overlooked in that category. But uh, the cochlear implant is a small number of electrodes that are put into the the neural tissue that's within your ear and uh, allows people who have... Problems with the sensory part of their ear, uh, to have the sort of nerve that goes from your ear to your brain stimulated directly, and and thereby kind of hear some crude signals, uh, auditory signals that their brain learns to make sense of. Uh, again, we're you know not really focusing on that here though.
0: So, the issue of how to collect the neural data and then what to do with it, what to use as an actuator in the world, those are difficult issues because there's a lot of constraints. You know, you want A device, if you're going to have a patient be using it 24-7, you want a device that, you know, is lightweight and not uh, really obvious to, to anyone. You don't want people to kind of have social stigma for using these devices. You need something that ideally has very long battery life and all of these kinds of things. And then... For a prosthetic arm, you would need an arm that can move in many degrees of freedom and can kind of have natural behavior as much as possible and these kinds of things. And those are all very challenging problems, but those tend to fall on the engineering side of uh, problems associated with brain-computer interface. Whereas neuroscientists, I think the most interesting part of this whole process is that middle part, the figuring out what information you can get from the neurons and how you can turn neural signals into commands to an output. Um, And so we're going to be talking about ways that that is being approached and kind of the issues surrounding that part of this process.
2: So, yeah, so kind of, we're taking it for granted that you've acquired some neural signals and we'll kind of mostly put aside EEG type settings and focus on invasive cortical uh, electrodes, recordings. So. Something like ECOG or uh, an array, like something like a Utah array, which has, you know, approximately 100 electrodes that penetrate into the, the brain and pick up from uh, electrical activity from a small number of neurons. So you, you have something like this. You're recording from some neurons. Let's assume you've done all of the pre-processing and you have something like a recording from between 10 and maybe 100 or 200 neurons, 200 individual neurons, and they're from the right brain areas, whatever that means. So people are trying to figure out what what the brain areas that are optimal to record from this, but some parts of your cortex that are related to motor control.
0: Mm-hmm. And the reason that uh, we'll be talking mostly about this form of collecting the neural signal is that that is what's used most in current laboratory research with animals, and it's used because it's considered the best signal that you can acquire in terms of getting a lot of information and a lot of kind of cleaner and reliable information. Things that are uh, something like EEG that's coming through the skull and being recorded from the scalp is just considered a little too noisy and maybe not reliable enough to be used for the kind of um, high dimensional control you would want for a motor prosthetic. It can be used for simpler things, like if you just want to indicate yes or no, maybe an EEG signal is sufficient to do that. But if you want to be able to kind of extract a lot of information simultaneously, it's pretty and much quickly assumed... quickly Yeah, and quickly. It's pretty much assumed that you're going to need to be getting the information directly from neurons themselves. So it may seem somewhat straightforward, maybe, if you think, oh, okay, well, I can record from cells in motor cortex. I can you know, go to the area of the brain that represents the arm and I can record from cells there. And now I have a, a, a robotic arm and I'll just send the signals, you know, to the robotic arm. Uh, but it's actually kind of being very generous to the field of neuroscience to assume that we can make sense of what those neural signals are. It's, it's not actually known precisely what cells in motor cortex are representing, uh, even if we know, okay, we think this area is controlling the arm, the exact way in which that control signal is encoded is, is not known. And so it's not so simple to just kind of plop electrodes in there and pick up the signal and have a clear idea of what the intention of the person is in terms of what they want to do with their arm. And so that's kind of the heart of the problem in getting these devices to work.
2: So there, there are very naive things you could do, right? Like you could just basically do the simplest statistics that you could imagine on um, your your set of cells and try to do those, and try to use that basic things like linear regression or whatever to uh, to to do decoding. But this is kind of underusing the power of the available.
0: Sure, uh, and neurons. to be clear, that would be once you you know have some recordings from the animal while they're moving their arm, and you could see what the correlations between activity of certain neurons is with different movements and then do some simple relationship to try to predict what they'd want to do the next time those neural neurons are active.
1: Yeah. So there are a variety of interesting issues there, right? So one thing is you, Grace said that you, we are not at the stage in neuroscience where we can go into say motor cortex and record the activity of like a hundred ish neurons and predict with any kind of accuracy what it is that someone is trying to do um, with their body. So one thing there is that we don't know, like you said, the way in which a desire or an motor intention is encoded, the way that that information is represented in some part of the brain. We don't know that. Um, and so an issue in brain-machine interfacing is, do you want to try to learn in, from some kind of bottom, in some bottom-up type of way, what the encoding is, and then use that knowledge to read someone's mind and then make a prosthetic limb do what you are inferring they want to do. This is kind of a fuzzy thing, but you can also imagine that you just put some recording device in and in some kind of more uh, computer learning way where you let a computer algorithm adapt and learn somehow in some statistical way that has to be specified um what the person wants to do this kind of relates to things you know about what it would mean to understand the neural code if we were able to build really good say brain machine interfaces where we could record a bunch of neural activity put it through some algorithm and then have it wonderfully control with great accuracy a complicated device like a naturalistic prosthetic limb we might still not say that we understand the way that the information is being represent, represented in the brain, even though we can actually effectively read that information in a very useful way, for example.
2: So and then another sort of complementary part of that is, it's so, you know, option one, you, you observe the uh, animal, let's say, actually moving his arm and just look for relationships between uh, the neural activity and that movement. Option two, you kind of plug in the thing, you don't use this kind of supervised setting and you just kind of let your algorithm learn things. Option three, right, is basically you plug the array in and kind of fix some rule whereby the animal could uh, control uh, some uh, effector, the robotic arm or cursor or whatever. And you kind of let them learn how to do it.
0: So the idea in, in the third option is that it, it's something which would be called closed loop in the sense that You control the device, and you also can see how successfully you're controlling that. You can compare your intended movement with the actual movement on the screen or whatever, and that should provide some sort of learning signal. And because humans have a tendency to learn things, uh, you might be able to increase performance of this just by the fact that your neural activity is changing in an effort to, to be able to successfully control the device.
1: Yeah. That doesn't have to be possible, right? Like it might be that the way that you the way that you're it might be that for an adult, the way that neural activity in the brain looks when you are, say, reaching out your right arm is totally fixed and there's no plasticity, things can't change much in the brain, such that if you try to decode from by reading the activity of neurons with an array, an electrode array, in motor cortex, if you try to to, to um, predict the movement that someone is trying to make with their, say, missing or paralyzed right arm, there might just be one way to do that. And it might be that if you don't know the particularly, like the perfect way to decode that information at the beginning, and you leave your decoder um, unal- unaltered, the person will never be able to learn how to, how to move, say, the prosthetic limb that they're trying to move. So that's already a kind of a finding a not unexpected finding, um, which I guess, I mean, I don't know if that's not really a finding of BMI necessarily, I and mean, maybe yeah, yeah. this from other contexts, but it is the case that there's a lot of plasticity in the brain. And so it's actually expected that at least to some extent, if you make a fixed, you, you create a fixed mapping from recorded neural activity to the movement of a prosthetic limb or a cursor, it's expected that even if that mapping at the beginning is not very good, the person will be able to learn to control... The uh, device more accurately,
2: and so I, I think the um, so this this is consi- you know in, in the BMI field the first person to show this I believe was uh, uh, Fetz mm-hmm. in at University of Washington and this is considered like a the, the notion that you could use like you could have volitional control over n- neural activity in motor cortex is considered kind of the the cornerstone by
0: using feedback right you
2: need to uh, feedback uh, well so in this case it was just that you could use volitional control to control single neurons or small numbers of neurons and then then use that for a prosthetic purpose
1: and was that a reward thing or something like they would i know people do these things with like rats and stuff right where you can just you can give the rat you can record a neuron and you can do things like very simple things like give the rat a reward every time the neuron fires more than a certain amount and by doing that kind of thing you can actually make neurons fire more so that kind of already demonstrates in a very simple way the principle that Things that happen to you in the in the in the world, like rewards, which you know, in the example of controlling a limb, would be, oh, I controlled the limb successfully in the way I wanted to, can actually change what neurons do in your brain by some processes that we don't really understand.
2: So, so, while while it's not obvious that you could do this in a specific brain area like motor cortex, it should be pretty like kind of obvious that you can learn to do new motor things somewhere in your brain, you know, kind of a priori, you don't know where in the brain that's going to be, but somewhere in the brain, you could presumably learn. So, uh, you know, I mean, kind of at a very naive level, you can sort of imagine like playing a video game and learning how to use a video game controller to control a character on a screen or something like this. And the fact that you can do that, that you can kind of map movements of your fingers uh, to the movements of a character on a screen, like you should be able to do, you know, somewhere in your brain, you're able to learn even as an adult, though potentially less well, arbitrary mappings between... Movements of a certain sort or intentions of a certain sort and uh, control of something abstract uh, that isn't directly related to the way your body works. So, I mean, anyone who's played video games, kind of, that should be somewhat intuitive. That somewhere in the brain
0: that's possible. And people talk about this just in you know simple tool use, the notion that if you use a tool a lot, you kind of start to view it as an extension of your own body. And you have good predictive ability over what will happen to that tool when you do certain things and you expect certain feedback and all of that.
2: So, so those things, right, it's kind of high level clear, turns out there's some ability for recording from kind of motor cortical areas to do this kind of thing. And you can you can express some of that intentionality and, and you can do some of that kind of learning uh, in, in those brain regions.
0: So it's kind of it's a it's a happy finding that the neurons are kind of so willing to adapt to this decoder that's kind of listening in on their activity and, and controlling something. But I guess it also is somewhat complicated because you can get a, a decoder that you've designed and it maybe it works really well, and then the next day the animal uses it and it doesn't work that much because the neurons are changing for a variety of reasons. Uh, so there's kind of a question of how you deal with neurons changing their behavior as well as your attempts to make your decoder perform as best as possible and what can happen when these two things interact.
1: So in thinking about it that way there could be a few extremes which I guess they talk about a bit in that perspective written by Shanoi and Carmina where one would be I don't know if they state it this way explicitly but one extreme would be something we've already mentioned record a bunch of neurons, define some maybe arbitrary mapping between what the neurons are doing and what the device does, and then fix that, let the person or the animal try repeatedly to do certain things with the device and see if they can learn, which in this case has to mean, because the decoder is fixed, it has to mean that their neural activity will change such that some neural activity, when mapped through this decoder that you arbitrarily defined, results in desired movements. And then at the other extreme would be to try to build a decoder at the beginning, which I guess we mentioned this also at the very beginning, where, for example, have a monkey doing arm movements. And suppose we're trying to, de- to build a prosthetic arm, try to record activity while the monkey does actual arm movements, and then figure out the mapping between the neural activity and the arm movement. So I mean.
2: The second option, we basically call a biomimetic decoder, where the decoder is imitating or or mimicking what the the native system biologically would do. A a, a third option, right, is is for the decoder to do most of the learning. So you kind of, the assumption that goes into this kind of in a very hand-wavy sense is that the person or animal doesn't learn, that their neurons don't change, and you just Put all of the work on the decoder to update itself uh, based on some signals, based on some error or something like this, and try to get the decoder to do as well as possible given those fixed signals as more data comes in, and you're able to learn more. Um, so, so those are kind of some of the extremes, and that that paper, I think, you know, kind of their their main message is maybe there's some productive synergy you can get out of playing with a couple of these things in conjunction, right? So instead of treating just these extreme cases, which are the easiest to do research on, right? It's it's easier to fix the decoder and see how much the user learns, or it's also relatively easy to kind of use an adaptive decoder and just kind of say that the performance gains come from the adapting of the decoder and not so much from the adaptation of the user. Uh, you can, you know, try to contrive more clever and more complicated experiments to tease apart the sort of fine level at which these factors interplay.
0: And it is important uh, to kind of understand these distinctions because it does change the way you would approach the problem. If you really thought that, you know, the main benefit will come from the neurons adapting, then you would put your efforts into putting the user into the most optimal conditions for learning. And so maybe there's certain types of feedback that work best to, to get the neurons to adapt and that sort of thing. If you thought that it was kind of all on the the back of the decoder to, to know exactly what the native... Uh, use of these neurons was and to figure that out then you'd have to put a lot of effort into understanding the motor system as it is in a normal uh, intact person who's used, just using their their motor system to control their arm and then if you think that the decoder needs to adapt to the neurons in whatever way that works then you have to put effort into understanding decoders and how to optimize them and that sort of thing so these aren't just kind of different uh, opinions and that sort of thing it doesn't matter kind of what the answer is or what you expect the answer to be as to to what or to how you pursue this kind of research
1: so can i ask you josh do you know the answer to this can you give us some sense of like what brain machine interfaces of interesting kinds can do yes
2: so, so i mean today uh i think there are you know a number of good labs that are doing things but you know for example Shino- krishna Shinoi's group does some very nice work with uh, cursor control and at this point Using a couple of Utah arrays in a monkey, they're able to uh, fairly robustly control a, a cursor in two dimensions on a computer screen and have that look nicely. I mean, they're moving to more complicated settings, but like in terms of things that are kind of solved in a certain sense, now this is solved in monkey. And I think they're basically in the process of porting this to people. Robust cursor control that's kind of on par with the level of cursor control that you could get with a person using a mouse. Okay.
1: Krishna Shanoi is a professor at Stanford. Yeah. And so one issue there is, you know, cursor control on a 2D screen, um, in terms of the dimensionality of the problem, it's basically, you know, it's two dimensions. You have to control the vertical and horizontal positions of the cursor, um, which is obviously really simple compared to an arm. I don't know what's the the dimensionality of an arm. Yeah,
2: Yeah, so so
0: it It
2: depends on how you count. So technically, like... uh, if you think of like the the human arm, you can kind of roughly approximate it as like it's 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 in the twenties in number oh, of degrees mm-hmm. of freedom. If you count like every joint angle in each finger, mm-hmm. the wrist, and it's kind of rotations and yeah. all of this, and the shoulder rotations and the elbow. If you count all of the kind of uh, muscle flexions and degrees of freedoms there, uh, it's it's kind of like twenty five, twenty seven, that that kind of ballpark. But obviously,
0: but, for actual. Applications they simplify it usually to like uh, is the uh, the hand opened or closed exactly so
2: you can do kind of dimensionality reduction where you you look for uh, joint angles in your hand and in your arm that are highly correlated and so maybe it's unlikely that you're going to, I mean and, and in fact you can't totally move your ring finger independently of of, other, of fingers. other fingers so you could kind of break it down to like a small number kind of five to eight by just saying, like, the shoulder moves, the elbow moves, the wrist rotates, and, like, there's open and closed of, of the, the hand, you know, kind of modulo, a few other things. And, and you can get kind of a lot of the resolution there.
1: So one point just is that chinois thing that you say is um, basically a solve problem in monkeys currently being ported into humans. For, for cursor control. For right. cursor yeah. control is low dimensional and therefore, in some sense, easy. but at the, So, you know, from one point of view, that's not very impressive because they haven't solved anything near like the fully most you know difficult problems like manipulating something very complicated like a hand playing plus piano or, arm, or playing the anything. piano or whatever you but want but i to have do. to
0: imagine that when they first started this research it was like a pretty dismal thing to just be able to control a cursor but now that so much happens online like you can control exactly. a cursor yeah. Yeah, that's you that's what i was going to say any.
1: like in terms of you know <laughs> In terms of like actual benefit to patients. Yeah. Being able I mean, to control a two D cursor if you have a, yeah, if you're completely paralyzed is like incredibly useful. So, yeah. so and so cool. and
2: especially given the level of reliability. And I mean the other thing you gotta keep in mind, right, is that again, this is a small number of neurons, right? I mean, they're recording from generously a couple hundred neurons. And with 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 just that you're able to do this, right? I mean, sure, we have dexterous control over our hands, but we we do so with thousands, tens of thousands, millions so of neurons. More, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's many neurons that go into control of our body and to just kind of almost randomly uh, with, you know, some so, like pre-selection, right? but kind of approximately randomly select neurons from a certain brain region and only have a small set and be able to do like a really good job on, on cursor control. It, it's, it's definitely not obvious that that would have been possible. So it's like kind of tremendously cool that it is.
0: Yeah. And obviously there are people... There are labs who are actively working on getting actual physical movements uh, returned to these patients through prosthetic limbs, but those are you know, not as far along in the research, and obviously it's a lot more difficult to do, but there, you know, there was a video recently of a, a woman who could bring a cup of coffee to her lips with a prosthetic arm. Uh, there's also a famous video from Andy Schwartz's lab of a uh, monkey who is grabbing marshmallows and feeding himself with through a, a brain computer interface using a prosthetic arm. So people are still obviously working very hard on on that aspect of it. But if you can get a lot of functionality returned to a patient with just a cursor, then I think people are happy to pursue that route too. Well,
1: and, and like a very an important issue which I guess people don't draw a lot of attention to. Maybe we don't know that much about it. Is Longevity in these studies So when so I you think were, there are people Who draw a lot of attention to that It's just not the scientists but it's not, Yeah it's least, an engineering yeah. thing It's an engineering problem yeah. Yeah. yeah But it's not like The sexy thing That a scientist wants to report Right No. But you sorry. could
0: also imagine That it is a science problem Because the neuron activity Will be changing over time And all of that So, yeah, so you need to find A sustainable solution to- Yeah
2: there's kind of complexity Right so like I mean One issue is, I guess, kind of broadly speaking, that the immune system kind of attacks the electrode arrays. Sure, yeah. And so you kind of get scarring in those areas and things like this. And so there are material scientists, bioengineers, medical engineers.
0: So we should say the average span like useful span of one of these arrays in a monkey is usually maybe a year or so where they're getting clean signal
2: i think they can sometimes last longer than that yeah for for slightly noisier signal Mm -hmm. and i think it could be even a few years so i think that this isn't like totally well understood in, in 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 all cases but yeah i mean so there's kind of a whole i think engineering endeavor to make the electrodes more robust not deteriorate and not cause these kinds of responses by the body that try to 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 prevent them from working but uh so so that that's kind of one thing and kind of almost separate issue is like maybe the neurons that you're recording from maybe the electrode array gets jiggled and you get a different set of neurons the next day or maybe you're recording from the same neurons but they've kind of changed their patterns for whatever reason Uh, kind of broadly you can kind of hand wave and call this non-stationarity just like you know that that the signals are changing over time and that's like a problem that i think there actually are some good uh statistical solutions to uh so there are a number of kind of approaches where people try to update uh even without new training data just try to update the the decoder in light of minor non-stationarities um but that's that's obviously something that people still are working on that that is kind of a contemporary problem as well
0: so do you imagine that if someone were to use one of these devices every day, they'd kind of have to like calibrate it every morning to their, you know, whatever particular set of neurons it has going on. You have some sort of task where you show the decoder, okay, right now I'm trying to point to this exact spot. And so it kind of can get a little training. So data. I think
2: people were afraid that that was going to have to be the case for a while. And, and recently though, there, I mean, last five years or so, I think there's been a number of papers that try to avoid this problem entirely statistical solutions. Either kind of assuming that most of the neurons are doing similar things and only a small number change on relevant timescales. As long as you, do, as long as that's the case, then you can you can basically update things quite nicely and, and not have your performance erode. And there are a few other kind of settings where people have have come up with uh, some statistical tricks to make this this work out. So I think the hope now is that if you if you get things calibrated somehow at the beginning, you know, get things working well. As long as things don't change dramatically you too, know, quickly or, too quickly, then then you can you can keep things working well. Uh, the, the hope is, and there's some demonstration that this works, that you can keep things working working well enough.
0: For any individual, obviously, the first time they use it, there would have to be some learning. I think sometimes when people hear things like brain-computer interfaces, there's like a fear, like, oh, someone can just plug something into my brain and they'll, you know, be able to read my thoughts or something. But I think no matter how advanced the technology gets, there's always going to have to be some point where you kind of provide feedback to the system that's trying to read your neural activity.
1: Um, If you don't know, actually, I don't know a lot about this at all. Josh knows more. Um, You can imagine that you might need to build like incredibly complicated algorithms in order to take the neural activity and in any way reliably predict what someone wants to do which is obviously to some extent true and that's like one major component of what BMI research is about Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about you know how complicated decoders need to be can you use kind of generic algorithms that have been imported from other fields
2: yes I mean there isn't like there's innovation in adapting kind of generic statistical tools to this setting and it's kind of like almost an engineering problem to, to, to take kind of generic things that could be used for like decoding in other statistical settings and applying them here. But mostly people who do kind of machine learning and Bayesian statistics have kind of a suite of tools. And people try quite simple things uh, as baseline uh, for, for decoding. And they also try sort of increasingly complex things. There's kind of, it's not clear what the optimal solutions will be kind of down the road, but some there's been some evidence suggesting that you don't actually need very complicated methods because when you actually put the animal in closed loop settings, you can use a relatively simple thing and it works reasonably well. And if you make things marginally more realistic uh, or, or kind of build better assumptions into your models, your decoding models, they don't actually end up working that much better in these closed loop settings when the animal's learning a bit and controlling things. So that's kind of one partial answer, right? That you can you could try simple things and increasingly complex things. And it's not even clear that if you do the kind of statistically more rigorous things, they always work better in the application settings. So that's not totally clear, but you know, there's a there's a bit of that. And then the other thing is, is uh and, and this this is definitely quite useful is if you know something about the structure of the movements you're trying to decode, you can you can do a much better job. And, and and this is this is generally pretty clear, right? So you can basically if you're trying to control a cursor just by constraining it to be like a smooth trajectory to, to some extent, or, or right, a trajectory that's not gonna jump from one point to another point all the time,
1: you'll do a better job. So this, is kind of, to... this is kind of Bayesian thing, right? Yeah. Like you have prior knowledge about what things might happen in the world. Yeah. When someone's trying to move an arm they're almost certainly not trying to wiggle it at high frequencies or something.
2: Exactly. And you know you know, you, you, maybe the wrist is going to move much further than the... Sh- the, right? the shoulder rotation is not going to be that large in magnitude relative to the wrist movements and position out, out in space. As you're waving your arm around, the shoulder's not going to move that much. Um, certainly the shoulder position, and you know. And the elbow maybe doesn't bend that much except for in certain types of movements. And so you can kind of learn about like the, the structure of all of the, the joint angles on the arm, and you can use that kind of information to improve the quality of the decoder. But aside from that, it's not clear that you need much more than kind of approximately linear-ish relationships between uh, the 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 neurons and uh, various variables you're trying to decode, but
1: you, you just kind of leverage some of that prior information about... The movement space. Do you know what algorithms Chennai's group use in their successful cursor control? Yeah, it's basically a common filter. So okay. basically, it, I
2: mean, kind of in crude language, they just assume that the, the neurons are linearly related to like position and velocity of the cursor and that the cursor is going to not jump around on the screen. It's going to, like, from one of moment in time to the next is going to be pretty close to where it is and put those two pieces of information together and you basically get things and just to be clear we know that the neurons aren't linearly related to those variables i mean there's obviously linear is kind of like a first order approximation to, to to what those variables are but we know that these neurons have slightly more complicated response properties right you can just forget all about all this information which we know from the physiology and you can still do a reasonably good job of decoding.
0: So that's kind of related to a larger issue that you can talk about, or like an idea you can talk about with brain-computer interface, which we have kind of hinted at, is this question of how relevant neuroscience knowledge is in the creation of brain-computer interfaces. Or you could ask it the other way, and like, do we learn anything about neuroscience and about brains and how they work from building brain-computer interfaces? And I, I feel like naively most people would say, yeah, of course, you're interacting with the brain, you're using neurons to control something. How do you not learn things about, about the brain in the process? But I think a lot of people who are in this field would think or would even say that uh, you don't actually have to understand, say, how the motor cortex encodes motion to build a brain-computer interface. And it's the, that answer is related to these things we've talked about where really only the, the biomimetic approach where you actually try to get the decoder to do what uh, you know the body itself was doing naturally. Uh, that's kind of the only approach where you really explicitly need to understand what the brain is doing, and these other approaches where you throw in a decoder and have the neurons adapt to it, or you have a decoder that tries to catch up with the neurons, those approaches don't necessarily require a really clean understanding of how the brain works. So it really is a question as to how related brain-computer interface development is to neuroscience.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of a more general question as well, right? So, like, in most kind of clinical research, which kind of broadly is, like, research focused on kind of medical advancement, generically defined, right, It's, it's not clear how much real science needs to get done to make these kind of clinical advancements, right? So, like, when people want to test a drug, it's often not the case that they do what scientists would consider, like, real, pure science to figure out how that drug works and and what its effects are. You just kind of throw your drug at the animals and see what happens. I mean, that's a slight hyperbole, but...
1: Yeah, it's, like, like pretty exploratory, basically. It's kind of a, you know, you just kind of trial and error, fancy trial and error, sort of.
0: (laughs) <laughs> large
1: scale trials.
0: large scale well funded expensive <laughs> very expensive trial in error.
2: And so if you have, with a lot of animals yeah exactly and humans yeah. and humans yeah so if you have you have this idea where like you think some drug might work you try it and see what happens and I think something kind of similar here occurs because you know it's it's kind of a clinical thing you're, you're more interested in doing something that works well enough than you are in figuring out how the whole brain works in order to enable this technology. And, uh, you know, uh, you can kind of debate about the issues around this philosophically. And I don't actually want to take a side strongly. I mean, I think it, for, for most neuroscientists, it seems intuitive that the more you know about the brain, in the long run, that should help with these clinic, with many clinical problems, including brain-computer interface.
1: I think for biologists, and also just relatedly speaking of drugs, right? if you actually think about how drugs work, most of them are shit and have all kinds of weird side effects and we don't know why um, and they don't really do what they, we want them to do exactly. And that's all I I assume that that is in large part related to the fact that we don't understand the biology that's relevant in in almost any case. So we can't design, we don't design drugs in like principled ways based on understanding, you know, this is exactly how this kind of pain works. And this is precisely what we need to alter in the body in order to alleviate that pain. Because we don't know the body. Well. We don't know the Internet. body. We don't understand the body. So
0: if you just like heard at some point, oh, I've heard that this drug has this effect in mice. Someone stumbled upon that. Then you think, all right, that's an effect I want. That made that mouse you know, seem to report less pain in painful circumstances. Well, then let's explore it. I think it's due to a sense of urgency that there isn't this yeah. uh, this ethic of you know wait we need to figure out the exact mechanism before we move on. It's just no, it's it's working. We got to keep trying this so that we can have something that works, and that's mm. obviously reasonable. And yeah, because these uh, things
1: go in, in. I mean, theoretically, these things proceed hand in hand, right, in parallel. Yeah, people kind of push, given current knowledge, what's the best we can do with whatever understanding we have, and then you know, in the- theory, in parallel kind of more academic scientists, but also research scientists, you know, maybe in, in industry um, are at the same time pursuing better actual, you know, detailed knowledge such that we can then build, you know, next generation, better drugs or brain machine interface.
2: If anything, I do think that maybe the pure scientists resent slightly the extent to which the purely clinical research is funded often much better than the sort of basic research, which, you know, apparently should yield more interesting and, and more successful results, right? In theory, if, if if the academic scientists can solve problems or or understand how the brain works or how certain specific systems work, you would expect that you could really make
1: like strides in, in medical technology. Yeah, but, so that's like an important real world issue. Like it's very nice to say that in reality we develop drugs based on what we know now and we try to improve our understanding, but a very if we spend most of our money, yeah, exactly. On, the practical issue of like where do you spend the money isn't is like a choice that gets to, made somehow by a society or whatever. And I think yeah, like you said, a lot of scientists probably feel like we didn't, you know, choice has been <laughs>
0: it's a poorly unbalanced. Yeah,
2: yeah. And so right, just just kind of to the lay of land, I think it, it's our perception yeah. at least that most people in biomedical research are more clinical than pure. Yes, and yeah. more of the money goes to them. Yeah.
0: And that's, just say, I, th- yeah. I think BCI is a good example of that because the Defense Department funds a lot of research on BCI for the purpose of helping people who are returning from war and have lost limbs and that sort of thing. So for this very issue, a lot of the money comes in through a, a clinical route. But there are people who think that BCI research is actually informative for neuroscience, people who work on it. So it's not, it's not that everyone feels that, oh, I don't, I don't have to keep up with neuroscience. I do BCI work. Um, So there's this paper from Miguel Nicolaylis, who is a researcher at Duke University, Uh, it's from 2009, and it basically kind of addresses this issue, and from his viewpoint, there are many notions in neuroscience that research in brain-computer interface has kind of supported or helped further, and that sort of thing. And so he's on the side that this, this research into interfacing with the brain is giving us information about how populations of neurons encode information.
2: I mean, just as, uh, before we step into some of those details, I mean, to me, it's also BCI is at least potentially appealing for kind of future research because there's not that much ability right now for researchers in neuroscience to record in detail from the human brain, right? There's a, in some rare cases, there are people who have like certain, uh, who need surgery to treat their epilepsy. And we rec- we, we put invasive ECOG or micro-ECOG in their brain for short periods of time. And sometimes you get an experiment slipped in there while they're in the hospital and they volunteer for it.
1: Epilepsy and a few other things. A few other things, sure.
2: Um, but there aren't that many settings right now where we, we actually get to record from the human brain invasively. Uh, and, and with invasive recording, giving us a lot more information, things like fMRI or EEG, not that those, they, they give us information, but right, there are certain things that we really need invasive techniques for. And BCI in principle, it's, it's going to help people. And once the electrodes are in their brain, there's definitely the opportunity to potentially, you know, learn a lot uh, mm-hmm. about healthy brain function or, or the, the brain function of these people who, who,
1: are able to, who have them implanted chronically. Yeah, And maybe, again, just one more thing before we get into some of the details from this paper by Nicolaus. Um I mean, it is clear that we have learned things, right? I mean, you said earlier on that it wasn't at all obvious some time ago that you'd be able to, with a basically random sampling of neurons in some part of the brain, and then with a basically not very complicated um, decoder, control anything. And now there are at least some cases where we can do that really well. And that does tell you something quite crude, but I mean, it tells you something about some of the basic kind of parameters of how the brain works. You know, ballpark with this many neurons, you can do these things, and you don't need some very specific readout of the information in the neural activity to make certain things happen, which tells you things that we, you know, are not very detailed maybe, but. They are things we didn't know. Sure. So, uh, getting to this, I mean, this this
2: paper is kind of framed around the presentation of some principles uh, of of neural ensemble physiology that it's argued uh, are kind of learned from brain-computer interface science, or or at least bolstered. So, are there any that kind of strike you as particularly well? There
0: are. They're the first. So maybe the first three or four. So i I'll list the, the titles he gives to these. There's a distributed coding principle, a single, single neuron insufficiency principle, a multitasking principle, and a mass effect principle. And uh, he frames these as all having slightly different focuses, but the general idea is that you need a population of cells to do anything interesting. So the notion that there's distributed coding, it's just that Uh, You're not going to find one single area or one single neuron that's going to give you sufficient information to tell you what the arm is supposed to be doing. Uh, You're going to need to look at multiple neurons, and an effect of that is that these neurons are usually multitasking, meaning that each neuron is providing information about many different things, maybe the position and velocity of the arm or different parameters about muscles and that sort of thing.
2: So these are logically distinct points, right? It it could be the case that there's only redundancy, but each neuron encodes like a specific thing and that there are multiple neurons that encode that specific thing. But I think most contemporary neuroscientists or certainly computational neuroscientists kind of associate these things together. That when you have a population that's representing something or encoding something or, or related to something, that the kind of the signals often get mixed. Yeah. And this is kind of a, a, a new way of thinking about things, but something I think most... Yeah. In neuroscience,
1: I mean, it's kind of... I think in some ways, if you were an alien who landed on Earth and had decided to put neuron, neural recording devices in the brains of humans and try to predict their behavior from what their brains were doing, it seems to me that... In, maybe this is, Maybe we can argue about this, but it seems to me that some of these principles should kind of be the null hypothesis... Maybe but, maybe I, mean, I have a very skewed perception of it. like I feel like it would be really to... surprising if you put a thing in and it was like, oh, actually, it turns out that every single neuron encodes one specific parameter of all behavior, and that no neuron, no two neurons you know, encode the same thing. But you but, don't
0: have to have a thought experiment thought experiment about aliens, you can look at what humans actually did. And at least for sensory systems, they kind of did think, oh, you can look at an individual neuron and you can see what it corresponds to in yeah. terms of and I think, input stimuli. And so if that's the history that so So it, so it was from, the
2: case historically in neuroscience that people recorded from animals and kind of expected or speculated that they would be able to verbally and intuitively describe simple variables that a specific individual neuron corresponded to and that was represented p- encoded whatever
1: that was possible in a bunch of cases but it seems really obvious to me that that's that's what happened because it's just the easiest thing
0: we looked at the simplest areas like primary visual cortex
1: and it's not and were. also it's just too complicated you know what you do is you give some very simple stimulus and you just are trying to find neurons that are correlated in a direct way mm-hmm. with some parameter of the thing that you're changing so you move something and you're just looking for neurons that fire when you move it so it was almost like it seems very built-in in a way so i guess the alien thing i was thinking of some kind of yeah i could have just said if humans had been like smarter and less <laughs> yeah that
0: sounds like a pretty intelligent alien species you <laughs> came up with like they come to earth they already know that our brains are what control us like that took humans forever <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We were More poking around kind of at our hearts for a long time. God, it's not supposed to. Yeah. In, so. um, but yeah. So, it, so clearly, it's not the case that BCI research alone is what led us to the notion that hey, you have to look at a bunch of neurons, and each neuron might be doing many different things, and also the neurons are noisy, so you have to you know collect many of them at one time to get an average of the activity because you can't trust any individual neuron. These kinds of things obviously show up basically anywhere in the brain. But uh, there's, you know, I think it's somewhat reasonable to say that BCI work has helped solidify some of these notions or certainly offered more evidence that these ideas are what are at play in controlling behavior. Yeah, and maybe
2: it's, it's particularly relevant in BCI in
1: a certain sense. Because... Yeah, because
0: you need to actually decide how many neurom- neurons am I yeah. going to record from I and what should I be expecting them to be encoding and that kind of This
1: thing. is a good example of how science and kind of engineering interact and like also it gets at like what science is and the purpose of science in a way I think pretty much all of these principles were kind of things that people knew before people tried to do BCI or you know around the same time or something or I mean a lot of these ideas are more solidly accepted now but they're not I don't think it's fair to claim that any of these principles was like I mean, to the, to whatever extent they're even true, any of them was like a discovery of the field of brain-machine interfacing or something. But it's definitely the case that when you try to make very precise your claims about a system, and in particular, try to kind of control and manipulate it, which effectively is brain-machine interfacing is something like that. You're trying to really measure the brain's activity in a precise enough way that it can act you can actually like make it have predictable effects on the world and so in that sense it kind of yeah like you said it basically solidifies um, it makes very concrete the ways in which some of these things are kind of relevant so, so
2: another way of looking at that i think is just that kind of at, a, at an even higher level i mean so as, as kind of computational theoretical scientists it's it's interesting to make models that make predictions then you can kind of validate those models on new data and it can can tell you interesting things. You can kind of formalize your hypotheses about what you think is going on. Brain-computer interface research is in some way like a natural test bed to say how well well can we do things with neurons. Again, we've already kind of talked about the fact that it's not clear that you need to know that much about the brain to pull this off. But if you do think you know something about the brain, something like a BCI for that system is a reasonable way of validating if that's like real at all, if it has any measurable effects. Yeah. It seems
0: clear that you would want to so this 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 article by Nicholas is kind of trying to answer what is normally the reverse question of what has BCI told us about neuroscience. But since people are kind of questioning whether BCI is even informed by neuroscience, I mean I think that's it, it just obviously is because or at least if you're doing good work you should pay attention to neuroscience because If we're going to say, I believe this is true about neurons in the motor system, and, you know, if that were true, it could make you have a better BCI, like you want to take that information into account, or just learning about plasticity generally now that we realize how important that is for BCI. Any research on how neurons change and adapt to feedback should be very relevant to people who are interested in in building good BCIs.
1: I think the point about how... BCIs can be a test bed for ideas that you have in neuroscience an interesting kind of distinction to make is that you know you build a BCI and the the idea would be say if you think you know something about how motor cortex works you should be able to build good or better BCIs or something that's not totally clear that's you know I mean if you knew exactly how it works and you you could record all the neurons if you had the appropriate
0: technology it should be true
1: then you should be able to do anything I mean, but but an interesting thing is that that's not that's kind of not a, never going to be a full test of a theory of the brain in a sense because you should also be able to manipulate more directly, right? So you should be able to do the opposite thing, which would be if you could control neural activity, you should be able to produce behavior. produce behavior, sure. yes, which is, is a di- is a different.
2: So so maybe there's something to be said for sensory, uh, prostheses as as perhaps more. Useful as for, for testing things, because you can write in. But yeah, I mean, generally scientists do use decoding in, in generic settings sure. as as a measure that they understand the system. So
0: yeah. But I think, as Connor kind of alluded to before, the fact that you can you know get a bci to work really well that doesn't necessarily mean that you can then explain how the system works naturally to someone Sure. and obviously for scientists that's the goal is to be able to explain how the system actually works and scientists kind of view the creation of something like a bci as verification that your explanation was correct mm-hmm. so the fact that you can have the verification without the explanation in a way uh, it's just not completely satisfying yeah,
2: yeah. yeah you know, we've we've talked a lot about PCI and and we've related it to some of the science. I mean, one thing that's interesting to me is how much emphasis is placed on the notion of having a satisfying explanation. So I think that, I mean, that'll probably be a recurring theme in things that we talk about across topics. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's an emphasis here on understanding what the system really does. And it's a very complicated system, clearly. So what's the point of having like a intellectually satisfying uh, explanation. And I think a certain kind of thinker, a certain kind of academic, kind of usually more likely to be found in engineering or in, in clinical science, would just say, the satisfying part is if you can get it to do what you want it to do. So the, the test that you understand the motor cortex as much as you need to is that you have an adequate brain-computer interface. And this is definitely not the way that like people trained in physics or, or some people trained in biology would think, they really want there to be something that they can write in a textbook and have as kind of a, a distilled parcel uh, of information that they can refer to and it is whatever it means to be intellectually satisfying.
0: I'm inclined to think, though, that if you really did build a BCI that is just functioning amazingly well, that either it's because there's been enough, like, science in the air around you that you actually do understand the system or someone understands the system well enough, or if you just kind of looked under the hood for, like, a minute, you get insights as to how the system works. If you did some sort of, you know, completely uh, automated optimization system that determined what your decoders would be and how they would learn and all that kind of stuff, and, like, you didn't really think about it, but then you found something that worked really well... If you just poked at how that thing worked and kind of got some properties of it, you'd probably understand the way the biological system works.
2: Sure, but like the like you know kind of the toy extreme case, extreme corner is like we make an AI and it tells us what the best BCI is.
0: Yeah, and but it's a black just,
2: box to us. Sure, right? yeah. I mean, but that, that's what I mean. Yeah. It,
0: it can be a black box, but it would take minimal effort to make it not. Or, a black or box, I imagine yeah. once it's working. Okay. Maybe the
1: maybe the AI has to understand that or something. It's like, is there a philosophical thing where someone has in to order, understand yeah, something? Like, well, to be something to work, something has to understand
2: I mean, it works. Our brains work, yeah, and nothing understand. understands it. <laughs> <laughs> evolution, we assume, kind of randomly produced this. So, there's. I don't think there's a philosophical. Or, maybe evolution or understands it, or something. Just, <laughs> whatever that means. You just
0: made an airtight argument for God, right there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah God exists. Good. <laughs>
1: We can also imagine kind of like cool science fictiony, awesome things that we can do with brain machine interfaces. Like, I, was, I think this is kind of cool. Nikolaus mentions in his paper, which is like, you know, you could have actuators that were exist on completely different scales to the human body. For example, like little nano machines, um, and so you can imagine like controlling those with a brain machine interface, where you would have some kind of feedback on some tiny scale and you could like control little tiny surgical robots with your mind and do amazingly precise things or you could control like huge things you know like
0: satellites wanted, and stuff
1: <laughs> i've
0: always wanted the weather to match my mood so if i could yeah. get something in my amygdala that controls like
1: your local clouds weather.
0: and stuff yeah. That, that's when we've really solved it in yeah. my mind. I think <laughs> controlling... And solved meteorology. Yeah, we have to solve <laughs> meteorology.
1: It's going to be
2: hard. But the, there's, a, there's another kind as well that like a, a certain school endorses. Mm. I, I like to think of it kind of as like the Dr. Octopus kind of brain-computer interface, which is like almost cyborg kind of thing it's, it's where extending the, the, yeah well but it's also where the, the uh, this could be used for, for rehabilitative purposes as well right but the idea is that the, the the BCI thing is partly autonomous you you give it some signal but it's like part robot and your signals kind of give it a high level objective yeah. mm-hmm. so like yeah, climb I mean, me up
1: that mountain <laughs> yeah and then like
2: or, or in your, you're in your wheelchair and you like think where you want to go and the wheelchair figures out what the best path is mm-hmm. to get you there or yeah. similarly if like reaching and grasping with a, with an arm. So there's all these, if we're extremely optimistic, there's all these <laughs> the very cool... The future is um, bright. The future is bright. <laughs> but for the time being, uh, I think we've... Uh, there's already some cool stuff.
0: All right. Anything else? I think that's all. Till next time. <laughs>